You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 116. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And visit us at codingblocks.net, especially if you've never been to the website, because it's actually really good and has a lot of content there. And you can find show notes, example, discussion, and a whole lot more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications, and the O'Reilly Velocity Conference. Get expert insight on building and maintaining your cloud-native systems and Educative.io. Level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. All right, and today we're talking about the three-factor app, a modern, high-velocity, scalable architectural pattern for building applications. If you remember last episode, we talked about factor one, which is real-time GraphQL with a heavy emphasis on low-latency subscriptions. In this episode, we're talking about reliable eventing. But not before we give thanks. So, uh, you know, we always like to thank the people that took the time to leave us a review. So starting with iTunes, we have not the best coder, guacamole, and fish slider. I like the uh, the bang, the best coder. Yeah, right. I, I did enjoy that. And on Stitcher, we have Spotty Dog. So thank you all who took the time to, you know, sit down and actually write us. Uh, again, truly does leave a smile on our face, and we we really enjoy that. So thank you. Speaking of things we enjoy, we had a great time at Atlanta Code Camp. Thanks to everybody who came out, got to meet some people, you know, we've talked to for like years and just never really got to meet. So that was really cool. Uh, what up, Elixman? Right, like that, everyone else that we made that was really good. We had a booth, and so uh, we're definitely going to be doing stuff like that in the future. So uh, keep an eye out in your city. Yep. Uh, also, uh, gotta mention we uh, we met Beach from uh, Complete Developer, so uh, we're all big fans of the show, and so now I got a water bottle to prove it. Yeah, and we even have a picture out on Twitter on that one too, right? I mean, yep, had to get a selfie for that one. Yep, tons of hats were given away, gave away some AirPods. Like it was, it was a, a fun event. Had a really good time. Don't forget the stickers, the buttons, stickers, buttons. Like it, it was, it was nuts, man. Like, uh, outlaw was manning the booth all day and yeah, it was, it was a really, really good time. So, and, and I actually got to attend Joe's talk on Jamstack that he's done 25 times now. And that was the first time I'd actually heard it. It was really good. Yeah. I was sad. It, I, I was telling Joe afterwards that it dawned on me that like I didn't get to see it. And and he was saying that like that was gonna be the last time he did it, and so I was like, oh man, yep. not only did I not see it, I'll never get to see it now because like every time we were at a place to do it, I was always like working the booth, so I never did see it. Yep. You know the sad thing was I, I totally missed the punchline. Like I had a, a little code demonstration. It was all leading up to a point. And like when I first opened up the code editor uh, on the, the camera, I was like, "Oh no, it's opened up to the punchline." So I even like I was like, "Oh, you know," quickly scrambling to close it all down so nobody you know had it ruined. And then uh, I realized I was running late, and so I kind of skedaddled. I, I sped up, and I realized I ended up missing the, the whole point of the demo. I missed the punchline. Ugh. But uh, so you know, gone with the whimper. Uh, Sorry, it, Atlanta. <laughs> with the whimper, it was good though. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. 
All so, right. Uh, now back to three factor app. And we got a, l- a lot of really great feedback. A lot of people are really excited about GraphQL. I was actually surprised. I didn't think it was like as popular and, and people were as interested as it, it seems like they were after releasing the episode. That's, that's kind of cool. I mean, if you've seen GraphQL in action, it's hard not to be excited about it. I mean, yeah. especially for people who have written standard APIs over time. I still feel like most of the excitement is coming from the front end people who get to consume it. <laughs> and the back end people I talk to seem still a little worried about it, uh, you know, and for all the reasons we gave. So, uh, still, still it's interesting to see just how much it's growing in the front end. Cool. So in this one, we're going to be talking about, we just mentioned a second ago, reliable eventing. And so this one has all kinds of interesting things that we're going to talk about. So I guess we should go ahead and dive in here. So the first one that feels sort of wrong to most people that have done anything in databases or anything is don't allow for mutable state. Get rid of updates. Yeah. Yeah. Get rid of in-memory state manipulation in APIs. Well, that sounds like the dream, right? Like if you don't have to deal with state, then at that point, uh, everything can just be, uh, uh, oh man, help me out here. What's the word I'm looking totally for? Stateless shared nothing architectures? No, 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 no. Functional. Everything could just be functional. All your code could just be functional. It does kind of flow that way. Right? Yeah, and- there are a lot of lessons from functional programming that we're seeing kind of repeated in this architecture. Can I just say for one moment, we're talking about a three-factor app. It's only got three factors. The first one was GraphQL. <laughs> the second one is reliable eventing. Like these are pretty, you know, I would have thought of, of kind of being like, some pretty novel kind of things that they're putting together here. But I see it's really interesting to kind of take these particular slices and put them together in order to make an application. So I'm already like, at, you know, first with GraphQL, I was like, okay, interesting. And now you put in reliable invention, like, where are we going? Yeah. It's, it's somewhere a, neat. It's, it's going to get even more interesting as we dive into this further. So the next thing they say is, right, don't, don't do the state in memory and persist everything in atomic events. Basically meaning you you just write the bit that you care about and you move on, right? Like you're not you, – everything has to be just a small slice of what's going on, right? Its own piece. Yep, which sounds a lot like functional programming. And there's some advantages just like we've seen with like functional programming languages. And we've talked about a little bit. And we've talked about uh, too and we've, we've talked about React and it's kind of like functional one-way directional flow. Uh, and the advantages here, basically, those messages are replayable and they're observable, meaning lots of different consumers can watch that. And we talked a little bit about that with GraphQL subscriptions, and it's recoverable. Everyth- Not in that you can rewind or update things, but you can go forward Everything another ab- message. Sorry, I didn't mean to overtalk. Uh, everything about this section, though, made me think of, like, um, queuing and or transaction logs like it it wasn't even necessarily about like writing the one little thing like you said and then and then moving on it was more like hey i'm going to write something to a queue and then i'm just going to trust that it that it gets done that it gets dealt with and then that way i don't have to care about it right like i i don't have to i i don't have to block and wait right like i can just move on to the next thing and then should i crash once it's on the queue who cares it's on the queue something else can pick it up and run with it yeah so what you just said goes back to what Joe just said with the whole, you don't have to care about it because it's replayable and recoverable in that because you're just writing out the stream of events that, that happened to make like an order, right? 
the whole thing is you can rewind it and run it again. And in theory, you should always get the same thing back out. Assuming that you didn't change the business logic of whatever's dealing with that thing. It's kind of like what Git does your favorite thing in the world, right? Like Git can totally replay events. Like if you do a rebase on something or whatever, it basically takes whatever branch you're trying to rebase against. And it just replays your commit log against those. So it's it's very similar to that. It's just everything has its small slice. And so do you ever do this? Like when you're reading something or learning something new, like you'll kind of base it on like something you already have, you know, some knowledge of whether like regardless of how deep the knowledge is, like you have some idea of how something else works and you kind of like, as you're learning this new thing or reading this new thing, you're like, Oh, well that's kind of like this, or I could see how that will work. Right. So like, as I was going through this section, like I was kind of thinking about like things like, uh, you know, queuing systems, like I mentioned, uh, Kafka might come up. Or do you remember the Amazon Simple Workflow service? Oh, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that type of thing was coming through my mind where it's like, oh, okay, I could see this, like, you know, going through your order thing, right? Like, okay, I'm just going to put a job out to, like, process the payment, right? And here's the information, but I'm not going to block and wait on it. Like, I'm going to let, I'm going to trust that something's going to pick that up and everything that needs to hear that or listen to that or whatever, or, you know, is going to get that event and, uh, hand address it. And then I'm going to listen to some other queue, you know, uh, again, or like, you know, some kind of pub sub kind of environment where like, I'm going to wait for something to say that the order has been processed or, you know, it's been charged or whatever, or, or I can move on to the next step, whatever. I'm going to listen for that thing and wait there. Right. And that's a whole other architecture we'll talk about here uh, as we get towards the end of this episode. But I think that's what all of this is kind of building towards there. Right. Like, mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, and this has very strong ties to like cloudy architectures, things we talked about last episode, like streaming architectures. I also want to mention uh, so pure functions, basically the idea that if you've got no state, then based on whatever input you you uh, pass in, you're going to get the same output, which makes it really testable, which ties in nicely to unit testing. It's basically uh, just kind of, I think, an evolution of like best kind of coding principles. We talked about this with clean architecture too. Like if you apply the solid principles, if you kind of apply the same things to uh, both you know, small code and big architectural systems, the same exact lessons in the same exact ways, you get the same exact benefits. Yep. Wasn't there a math term though for that type of function where it was like, uh, it would always just pure functions when there's no side effects, like one, uh, same input in, maybe, maybe you're not talking about item potent. No, that's also involved here though. when, When messages can be replayed without breaking anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so one getting into this, it says the event system should have the following properties. And we mentioned the atomic. I thought it was worth calling out what atomic actually is. We have a link to the Wikipedia article here is, but the entire operation must succeed and be isolated from other operations, right? So if you're writing out part of your order, right? Somebody places an order on your site. Maybe you write the order header as one piece and then each one of the order details is another piece, like another isolated atomic event, right? Like, um, you know, line item one is going to be an atomic, right? Line item two, three, four, whatever, right? But basically they can't impact each other. They all happen separately and they have to commit completely to do it. Yeah. This is like the A and acid. Yes. Yep. When we're talking about databases, right? Acid mm-hmm. transactions. False possible unit. Also, it's reliable. 
meaning that uh, events should be described, uh, sorry, events should be delivered to subscribers at least once. You never have to worry about messages not getting there, but you might get duplicates. Oh, hey, you know what? I want to back up on one thing I just said. Like they actually, that Wikipedia article actually says that Atomic commits fulfill two of the letters of acid. Can you guess is the that second? Atomic can commit. Wait, Atomic is um, asynchronous transaction. Isolated. Uh, yeah, I can't remember all of the all of the. Uh, well, I'll give you a hint. A C I and D. <laughs> so it's Atomic <laughs> commits it, isolated and. Uh, D. The other one was consistency. Consistency. It, it fulfills oh. the A and the C, according to uh, that Wikipedia article. Atomic commits okay. and database systems fulfill two oh, of the key properties of acid. <laughs> yeah, apparently we need to do an episode on uh, acid versus base. <laughs> uh, no sequel versus sequel. I think that'd be a good one. Yeah, just to finish that, it says consistency is only achieved if each change in the atomic commit is consistent. Okay. And consistency, we may assume mean like, you know, if you wrote it, you can read it right back out. Two readers can read it. Always get the same values. Yep. I'm sure there's a better mathematical definition there. <laughs> That's kind of how I think about it. So this is where I thought, actually, it looks like somebody else put this in here. Uh, this ties into event sourcing, CQRS, one-way event flow and react, pure functions, transaction logs, queuing, streaming architectures, Lambda, Lambda Kappa architectures, which we kind of got confused on, I think, last episode on the architecture versus the actual implementation of like AWS Lambdas. Yeah, my point over there is just kind of like showing how this stuff is kind of related to other things that are going on and other things that are hot in, in kind of programming right now. So these are all kind of various topics. You know, each one is like easily their own show topic, but it's, it's all kind of the same principle. You know, we, we've got these, these atomic events that are replayable, observable and recoverable. And I was just kind of drawing the lines there to show how they're kind of connected to those other principles and those other ways of doing things, which. By the way, um, backing up again, though, to what you had said, it, you had mentioned that this reminded you of the queuing and all that kind of stuff. That's the reason why the GraphQL subscription model works, right? This is exactly what you said. As things get written in there, then then something else can subscribe to those changes, whether it's like the order was placed or whatever, like in the simple workflow. Um, that That's where it ties into that first part that we were talking about last episode. Yeah, if you remember, we talked a little bit about last episode, too. We kind of talked about three factors. Uh, the first was GraphQL. The second was the persistence layer, which is what we're talking about now with the reliable eventing being the center for persistence. And then there were the APIs that operated on the other side of that. And so the idea is that GraphQL puts data in the queues. Those APIs put data into the queues. They both read out of the queues. <laughs> you know, you're done. That's it. So that's the the main kind of bus for communication there. And so now we're kind of focusing on that middle part there, which is like the uh, reliable eventing data structure or storage. Well, I guess like one of the things that, and I guess I'll I'll look to Alan like with this, with this question though, is like really does, does, is Kafka like checking all the boxes for this section or am I misusing Kafka to think of it in these regards? No, a whole lot, a whole lot of these boxes. Um, Actually, I'd say a lot of, of the event buses out there, or not even event buses, but queuing systems out there probably check the boxes. The thing that Kafka has over something like RabbitMQ or some of these other ones is it's a persistent queue, right? So 
this whole replayability or recoverability, recoverability. That's why Kafka is specifically comes to mind, right? That's where it can be really nice because in theory, you could set up a Kafka topic to never expire. Right. So if, if you're thinking about like a bank system to where, you know, you start out with a zero balance and then you have a series of deposits and debits and whatever, maybe that's something you never want to expire, right? Like you always want to be able to replay that stuff. You could do it there. Would you probably put it in a database or some sort of backup storage at some place? Yeah, maybe, but you could. I mean, that, that's where like the difference between other queuing systems, like a, you know, Kafka or not Kafka, um, RabbitMQ or like going way back into the day to like an MQ series, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or those type of pub sub pub sub type environments, you know, I don't, maybe, maybe it's because it's been a minute since I've like really done anything in depth with them. So I'm trying to think like, Oh, I don't think that those messages stay around as long, but like you said with Kafka, you can actually treat it like a, tr- a true transaction. Tra- ah, I can't say the word transaction log. Right. And then, if we're you know going across the tenants here of what the three factor app is looking for in terms of the reliable eventing because of the replayability and the recoverability really made me think, okay, fine. Other queuing systems check that observable box, yep. but they don't check the other two like the same way that Kafka does. It's one of the reasons why Kafka is so incredibly popular is because of that persistence ability. Like by default, the topics all last seven days, right? And then they start rolling off. Um, but that plus the insane write speeds, the IO speeds with Kafka also smoke most of the other queuing system brokers out there. So yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons why it's so incredibly popular is because you can use it basically in place of any queuing system out there and also use it as reliable storage. Okay. So I think then the three of us are yes, yes, yes on uh, Kafka or Kafka, uh, depending on, you know, where you're from in the U S hitting, hitting the checkbox here. And, you know, uh, what was the Hasara that created this, the three factor app? Like they were very specific with factor one being GraphQL, like what other technology might have checked their boxes then for factor two that wasn't Kafka since they didn't specifically call it out? So we'll get into that a little bit further or oh, maybe a little bit ahead deeper. Of what you want. Okay. It's not further than what I want because they don't actually call it out. It's, I mean, if we want to jump towards the very end. No, we can wait. All right. We'll, we'll wait. We'll, we'll get back to that one because I think uh, that one's worth talking about a little bit deeper when we do get there. Um. So the next thing that they have up is this whole traditional, like the old way of doing um like saving data versus the three factor way. I kind of like how they did this on every one of their factors, right? Like this is what it looked like in your traditional way. And this is what it looks like in the three. Although factor sometimes app. the traditional was a little bit questionable. Cause it was like, Hey, wait, that's what we're doing now. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it wasn't necessarily new school. It was some of it was newer school than what most people are doing. So on this one, like the way that they went about talking about like API calls, in the traditional way of thinking about things, you request, you s- submit a request, 
data is loaded from the various storage areas. So like maybe you do an order, maybe you're going to pull some data from the database to mix in, apply your business logic. And then finally, you're going to commit that order and maybe all the other stuff to the database with that. In the three-factor approach, the request is, is issued and you write each one of those pieces individually, right? So maybe the order header, the line items, like we talked about earlier, you might have 20 records, but they all fired off and got committed. Yeah. And, um, well, I was kind of trying to think about this. Remember we talked about the pizza? Like if you order from Domino's, whatever, it kind of tells you, you know, your pizza is in the oven, right? So one way of kind of doing that sort of thing in transactional system would be like you basically have a, a record that has a state. And then as the state changes, you kind of update it. But the problem with that is that it doesn't tell you that all those messages have happened. So, you know, you can imagine like a website or something like it could go and fetch that state and see that it's changed. And now it's at this stage. But if it missed any steps in between, then it, it has to know basically that it can kind of skip to that right spot. And so there's no sort of like, you know, real steps on, as to how it got there. But if you do have those steps along the way that you can show things in a different way. And it's just, I don't know. I think it's really cool. You know, you know, what's funny is thinking about this, like trying when I, when I was reading this, I was trying to figure out how do you put this in perspective of somebody that's used to dealing with databases, how they'll think about this. If you've ever had a table that you're like, you know what, we need an audit trail for this table. That's basically what eventing is. Right. So, so your, your pizza ordering thing is a prime example, right? Somebody places an order that record goes into a table and says order was placed. Right. And in the traditional database way things would work is you might say, Hey, the pizza was cooked and you're going to add some sort of like, you know, pizza cook time here. Right. And user Joe is the one who updated it and said it was cooked. Now that's usually only two fields in a record. So you kind of lose any other stuff that happened along the way there. And then most RDB MS solutions to that would be, well, let's just create an audit table. You know, Joe updated the pizza cook time here and it's going to add an entry into this audit table. Or the new way to do that would just be through temporal tables or temporal tables, right? Where it happens for you. Which is basically still, it's sort of inserting a record in that same mm -hmm. table, but time stamping it and slicing it and all yep. that kind of stuff, right? So, so then the next one is, okay, now I'm going to give it to the delivery person to take out. You know, that's another couple of fields that you're updating there, et cetera. So instead of all that in the eventing world is it's basically just having all those audit trail records the entire way, right? Uh, order placed, pizza ready, uh, handed to delivery person, delivered, et cetera, right? So now you have this whole chain of records that tell you the state at every single it, – it's not even the state. It tells you what changed, what just happened, what was the event that just occurred. Would it be like the courtroom stenographer, would you say? Very similar. Yeah, I would say so. Just yes. constantly taking notes on what's happening? Mm-hmm. It, I like to, um, really fast. you know, if you only ever have the state of it, then it's kind of a pain to figure out, um, different kind of data points about that. Like if, if we've got a record of each individual event, I can look back and say, how long did it take to cook my pizza this time minus that time? And if, uh, if, if you don't have something like that, temporal tables, if you only keep the latest snapshot, then you're losing information. Yep. It's a, uh, it's pretty interesting. It's a different take on what most applications have done over time. So, so, okay. Hmm. Then do you have reliable eventing if you have a temporal table? Does it check the box? So Has maybe you make not. the replayable so argument. 
Here's the only problem with that on temporal tables is that's usually the latest state of something. It's not the event that occurred, right? Well, it's not the event, right? But it's the it is the state. Yeah, you're right there. So you're always you just have writing like, the latest state. But but it's not just the latest state though. That's the that's the one thing I want to clarify there though, right? In the temporal table, like you have you have the main table that would have what the current state of that particular record is, and then your temporal table, you know, the history that goes along with that that might have like all the versions that that thing has. But it's right? the previous state, and that's where it's a little bit different, right? Previous so, states. So let's talk about like an order because that's real easy to say to see. So let's say that you order a hundred dollars worth of something. The record that you're going to have in that table, the temporal and the regular table, because it's really the same thing, is going to be a hundred dollars, right? Let's say that you then decide that you're going to return a $10 item. So the next record you're going to see in that temporal table is $90, mm-hmm. right? So the problem is in eventing, that's not what you'd see. In eventing, you'd see all the items that added up to that order, right? So let's say it was 10 items that were each 10 bucks each, okay, right? I see where you're going with this. So then when you go to remove that, return that one, you just see a negative 10. So you're not going to see the state of the order. You're going to see the transactions that happened on the order. That's the big difference is you're not maintain, you're not keeping track of the state. You're keeping track of the deltas more or less. I think that's the easiest way to think about it is, is, it it's yep it's yep because the, then in terms of like yeah so like to counter what i said a moment ago it's not that it's replayable because you're not able to like replay the event you're just able to see that hey some event happened and it occurred and created this change right to the st- the final state at that time you'd have to calculate what the right. actual event was yeah there you go there's and there's the difference yep so that's that is truly the right. big difference between the typical relational database way of, of keeping track of records versus this event sourcing type way. So it's really like, you know, databases just need to expose the transaction locks. That's really what they are. What That's it kind is, of what right? this is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. If they just made that like something that you could interact with to replay the stuff in your. Funny you mentioned that. Uh-oh, yeah, there's companies that are specializing in building products around just that. Yep. So the next thing on this traditional versus the three-factor way is the how. So in the tr- traditional way, you avoid using async features because it's difficult to roll those back when there's a problem. So think about that. That's that's a perfect example of this whole order system, right? You're going to submit an order, which is going to have an address and, you know, some other stuff on it. So you don't know where to be delivered to. And then along with that, you're going to submit the order details, right? If any part of that fails, you need to be able to back it all out and tell the user, Hey, something failed here. So you're not going to do that in a bunch of async calls because you don't know how to tie those back together and say, Hey, I gotta, I gotta kill all these things back off and let the user know there was a problem. In the three-factor app way, you're going to async everything. Everything's just going to be a separate call, and it's going to write them all to the event log. And there's no need to roll back because if there's a problem, all you'll do is look at it and be like, hey, uh, there was a problem with this event. Let's add another event to fix that, right? So, Or it, maybe you don't even have to do that. Like if it's in the simple workflow kind of – like I'm thinking of the Amazon simple workflow scenario where like if you didn't finish – if you crashed for some reason and didn't finish it, then that's th- that item's still in the queue. It is. So I, I guess here's what, when I say 
you'll add something to counteract it. So we were talking about Kafka earlier. One of the interesting things that's really hard for people to grasp when we talk about Kafka is you don't delete a record in Kafka, right? Like if, if you write some stuff to it, if you, if you write uh, an item was $10 on your order into Kafka, you don't go delete that out of there. I'm sure there are some ways to force it, but Kafka is a transaction log. You are I don't not. Think there's a way to get rid of it. Oh, is there not? There may not be. I mean, you could write a filter and you could move everything from one topic into another, removing that one, and then you can delete the original topic. Wait a little while for its stuff to get flushed out of you know whatever metadata that, that hangs on to it because it does like to hang on to stuff, and then you can put it back into a topic that's newly created with the same name. But you're moving stuff at that point. So yeah. what I'm hearing is never use Kafka for your sensitive, personally identifiable information that isn't in an encrypted form. Well, lock that down for sure. <laughs> yeah, but for sure. but here's don't make the, mistakes. Here's the important part: you almost have like if anybody ever took an accounting course, like there's always this thing to where you're trying to balance the balance sheet, right? Like you put an entry over here, you have to put the same entry over here. If you need to counteract something that was put in to a commit log, you have to put in the inverse of that. So, you know, Hey, I didn't really want that to be a $10 item on there. Then you're going to add a removing $10 item Mm -hmm. record right after that, because you can only replay it. You can't, you can't delete, you can't update. So you cannot delete a record, nor can you update a record in Kafka. And it's the same way with these event streams. You cannot delete it. You cannot update it if you are sticking to and truly adhering to this event sourcing thing. So I understood where they were going with the traditional, where they were saying like, hey, you know, you're going to avoid, and that's the key word here, you're going to avoid using async because of the difficulty. So I was kind of imagining like, okay, yeah, I can see where you're going with that, I think, because you're probably going to like create one transaction. You're going to do everything inside that one transaction and then commit it when you're done. But then it got me thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, couldn't I create that? transaction technically okay if we're playing as devil's advocate here could not create that transaction and then call a bunch of async functions where i pass that transaction in to those functions you probably could. and i could you know roll that transaction back if i had to if any one of those were to go awry but there's so much additional work you'd have to do to make sure that hey what if that transaction never finished because it didn't get everything like there's so many things you'd have to work around there right like yeah. why didn't that transaction close why why did this thing stay open like it I mean, would be again, a pain i get the their point you know right. again the key word there's that you're going to be a, that you're going to avoid it it's not that you can't do it but I was like, is it really that difficult? Or maybe maybe I'm just oversimplifying it in my I th- mind. I think I think that you'd run into so many edge cases where you'd be like, screw it, this is not happening. But yeah, it's effectively a distributed transaction, which is like you know, famously hard. And like uh, like the two ways I've heard of dealing with it is basically like uh kind of like locking where you kinda like two phase kind of locking almost like you do in code where you kinda lock the data and say, All right, I'm gonna change this stuff. Everybody back off. Okay, everybody's off. Okay, now I'm changing it. That's works okay for a small number of systems, but if you're talking about like multiple systems, then there's what I've seen called the saga pattern, which is as miserable as it sounds, where you kind of like create like a like a checklist of things that need to happen, and then you go through like do these little units of work, and if something fails, then you need to have kind of a, like a basically a undo kind of action that you call on that, which will either undo like in the case of like a, a you know rollback a database. Or offset with something like a Kafka where you put in like another record to fix it. 
And uh, uh, it sounds awful to me. Well, this is why I asked though, because like I was trying to think back about it and I'm like, you know, I don't know if I've ever tried this, but I was like, oh, what would happen to that transaction object if multiple methods are running concurrently and be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to insert this record here and I'm going to insert that record there and I'm going to modify this one and delete that one. You know, like a bunch of those methods are happening. Like what, what does the state of that transaction object look like? Like, can you do that? Or maybe you can't. You can. Yeah, we've actually seen some distributed transactions, and the problem is they're actually way harder than what you'd think they would be. That's why I think, like, maybe I'm just oversimplifying it. But here, here's one thing to point out, though. This whole avoid using async doesn't mean that from your web application, you're not going to make an async call to the server. You are going to do that, but you're going to make one, right? That's really what they're talking about. You're not going to try and send everything off in a blast of messages. You're going to send everything in one bundled message that would then get handled on the server. Yeah, when I think of async uh, in these terms, I'm thinking about like fire and forget. Right. Like one way to kind of send a message to to something like Q is to say, send message, move on. Another way to send is like send message and confirm receipt. And even there, it gets complicated because you can say like, did the leader receive it? Did the leader and at least one of its replicates get it? (laughs) Did everybody get it? Like when, you know, when do you stop? Yeah. And uh, it's a pain in the butt, man. That's actually a really good point is we should tie this back into uh, factor one and even talk about the UI, right? So the big difference between this traditional with the avoid using async, just what Joe said a second ago and this async all the way is if you think about an order application in most ordering systems, you go and you place an order. You're going to wait for the little spinning thing on the screen to say, Hey, placing order. Don't push any buttons. Don't hit refresh. Don't do whatever. Right. If we're talking about the web and then after that's done, it's going to take you to another screen that says, Hey, your order has been placed. All is good. Right. In this async way, you could totally place an order and you could just get a little confirmation saying, Hey, we sent your stuff, right? Go do what you want to do. And then because the subscriptions are being handled through GraphQL, anytime that it's done behind the scenes, it's going to send a message back to your application. Your application will be like, Hey, let me pop up a toast or something and let you know, Hey, by the way, everything's cool with your order. doesn't matter where you are on the site because it was able to respond to it when it was done. See, the only thing with that though, is like, I don't know if you have heard, but uh, Joe mentioned this great, you know, experience. If you go to pizza hut and order from them, in which case it sings to you. So like everything you just described is wrong and out of date and <laughs> you should surf the internet over now and then. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Do we even call it internet. surfing the internet anymore? I'm pretty sure that's outdated. You're just riding the wave now. Yeah. You don't surf it. I think you're just on the internet. Yeah, you are always. Uh, unfortunately I am. Um, you're still surfing. I am. <laughs> well, I mean, you are from California. <laughs> That's like, right. Thank you. Yost. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so the next one that is the difference between the traditional and the three factor is error recovery. Now this one is really kind of cool in the traditional way. You have to implement some custom logic to do any kind of recovery to rewind the business logic. So going back to the temporal table thing that we were talking about earlier, you know, your first record said a hundred bucks, your second record said 90. How do you revert back? You've got to apply some custom logic to diff the two and figure out what actually happened. Right. In the three factor app, it was all a commit log. You don't have to really do much of anything. You just basically replay the events. Right. That's that's kind of it. You might replay them in the reverse order, 
so that you can sort of see what was happening. But there's really whatever business logic was there to write the event out in the first place. In theory, you just can just play them again. Now, think about it. Like, so I think it's actually Domino's, but uh, they put the wrong pizza in the oven. They send the message to you that says, your pizza's in the oven. Then they realize the mistake. Oh, crap. Uh, What do you do at that point? Do you like, sorry, we took your pizza out of the oven. (laughs) Like, is there a custom event for that? Do you just put it in again so you get your you know two of those i'll stop singing it but uh you know Whoa, it's, it's no, a hard problem. you can't stop singing it right yeah. once the once the cat's out of the bag there's no putting it back in the bag so so the way that you would do like this error recovery is you probably play those things and you might add another event to fix the error right so okay pizza was in the oven no, it wasn't messed up now we're going to add another record that says hey no the pizza's back in the oven right so so that's how you can kind of do some of this stuff. And if you need to get back to a point in time, you can truly just replay the events. If that's all we're talking about is for the recovery. So it's uh it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to find someone on YouTube, but uh, hopefully we'll have a link to uh, this amazing order experience. Maybe I'll have to order a pizza or something and record it for you. There we go. It's a little bit late for a pizza order, isn't it? No. <laughs> Prime time. I live by college. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's never too late for pizza. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get visibility quickly. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself today by starting a free 14-day trial. You can also receive a free Datadog t-shirt when you create your first dashboard. Head to www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to see how Datadog can provide real-time visibility into your application. Again, visit www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today. All right, so... Here we are back, and we want to talk about some of the benefits of an immutable event log. Can't update, can't delete, can't change it, whatever. So the primary benefit of this is the simplicity when dealing with recovery. That was like the last thing that we left off with um, right before the break here. There's no custom business logic. You just replay the events. They're there in the data. You just play them. And so due to the nature of persisting the data, the, the individual data event, you essentially build up an audit trail, which you don't need to have additional logging for that, which I hadn't really considered that. It's like your data is also the log at that point. That's kind of nice, right? Is is the fact that you could just sort of look at it and you know you know what's happening. Yeah, except it, it can be really difficult with these streaming systems to really inspect. Like, I guess you need some sort of specialized tool to be able to kind of like roll through messages conveniently. Uh, at least with Kafka, it's not very easy to just go like, let me see these three events. It's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, so what you do is basically you hook up a consumer, then you kind of pull <laughs> for items. There's Nin- one, there's 1989 one of the just called. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's going to keep doing that too. There's nothing I can do about it. That's amazing. Whatever. Yeah, it's not my phone. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> it's dot calling. Uh, He's stuck. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he needs plutonium. Uh, that's awesome. Bring the camcorder. 
So oh. here was the next. <laughs> uh, I think you heard his soul. A little bit. <laughs> I hate that phone so much. Uh, I hate so, it so much. It was cheaper to get the phone than to not get the phone, and that's how you know they're selling your information. Wait, what, what do you mean? It was cheap. I got the internet. Oh, yeah, oh. but no one says you got to plug it in. Yeah, you have one of those oh. bundles. You Look, just- I'm married. You know. <laughs> When you have a partner, you got to make some concessions. <laughs> we'll have a phone. Yep. <laughs> I, I remember that in the vows. Uh, yeah, right. For better or worse, landline that's, is required. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, we'll, we'll stop harassing you <laughs> for a moment. Well, only for a moment. <laughs> for a moment, yep. yeah. So I feel so old now. The other cool part of this is replicating your application is as simple as literally just taking your events and replaying the logic on top of them. So if you needed to move this over to another server, you just run it, right? Like you start over and, and you're good. So that's pretty ridiculous though. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of take issue with this one because now it's like, okay, you're just going to replay it on that other server. So, Oh, all the orders that went through the first time are going to go through a second time. Uh, okay. So that's fair. That's a really good point. Yeah. You may not run the payment part, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but you're going to be delivering a bunch of stuff. To but people you're not able to mutate that pass. Like these are immutable. So how do you know? Oh, on the second server, don't don't process the payment part. So now you have to have special logic when you do the replay. Hey, we're going to get into so the that's downsides. a little bit. That's a no. Little I mean, bit. you you replay the messages, not the actions. Yeah, I so think like that, you would you would you know replay the put it in the oven message and you would put the you'd replay the uh, got it out of the oven message. See, I actually you'd love replay the, fact the order process, order ex- received, order message. created, whatever. No, no, I love yeah. the fact that he takes issue with this because I have big issues with this too because I think the same thing. What what are you going to put all kinds of feature flags in your application to be like yo yo yo? When I replay this thing, don't actually do these five hundred things right here that are typically done. I just want you to get us back to the proper state. Yeah, but what I'm saying is like when you replay those messages, why run them through the application at all? Why can't you just, you know, copy the messages from one to the other? Oh, we'll get into that. Well then shortly. what does that even mean? Why even replay them at all? Yep. <laughs> just skip to the end then. Don't yep. even read the book. Just go to the last page. But there's the problem. Remember, there is no end because these are not uh, yeah. the state. Right, these are bits and pieces that make up the state when you add them all together. Fair point. So, Fair point. So, yeah. Otherwise, if you skip to the end, you'd only have like one line item out of ten, <laughs> and you don't even know who that line item belongs to. Right. You're just like somebody got something. Right. So, so yeah. now we're starting to. Is it, 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 by the way, we're in the benefit section right now. We're in the reasons why an immutable immutable log is awesome. It's so, goofy. So keep that in mind. Like we're going to be talking about the the downsides of this here in a minute. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so, remind me to come back to that one then. Okay. <laughs> so um, this one I put in here was uh, a little bit of side information. This allows you to think in DDD instead of CRUD. This was actually a decently long post. And, and I think to summarize – We've talked about how what we've done for, you know, God knows how long programming now. We had a tendency to think about the database first, right? Like anytime you went to write an application, like 
for me, I'm sure Joe, Mike, and a lot of other people, we just magically see a schema pop in our head for database tables, right? Like we know how this thing's going to lay out. We know how it would work. Done it so many times. It's kind of easy. The problem is you start thinking about business problems in terms of creates, updates, and deletes and reads, right? And that kind of stinks because that means that you're not actually thinking about the business problem. You're thinking about the technical implementation of how you're going to write code to somehow fulfill that business problem, right? When you do things sort of in this event sourcing type of way, you kind of think about the business logic more than you do about how you're writing the data out. And that's kind of what this whole article was about. It was an interesting take on it. And I appreciated the, the take because it forces you to think in the ubiquitous language instead of, Oh, I'm going to go create a record for the order. And then I'm going to have to go create these order detail records. And then I'm going to have to go update that other record. No, 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 no. What happens when somebody places an order? What, what is the outcome of that? Right. So it, it was kind of an interesting take on it. Yeah, so you could definitely say that uh, three-factor apps have a, a predisposition towards event streams. They don't mention any other kind of persistence. Like, you can have them. There's nothing precluding you from having a relational database or something uh, in the mix here. I just thought it was so interesting to see a kind of an architectural kind of take on doing something that's so different from how I usually think about things. It's been very refreshing. Yep. And so the next one that came up was one of the very common patterns. So... I've been saying event sourcing a lot. That's just one of the patterns. Um, you know, they were talking about this whole section is about an immutable event log. Event sourcing is one of the ways that this is handled in the programming world of being able to replay events and rewind events and do all that kind of stuff. So that's a call out. Uh, I don't know. Did somebody delete the? Okay. Never mind. I actually did. <laughs> yeah, don't delete that line. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was deleting show notes. Uh, see, it's mutable, man. Not good, not good. <laughs> right? We needed a mutable show note page. You ever yeah, think deleted though, history right there. You ever question, like, there are some people on the internet, like, Martin Fowler is definitely one, John Ski, like, I, you ever think that, like, maybe they just created everything that we know today? <laughs> and, like, yeah, you, I don't some of it we agree lot, with... Like, some of it we might not, some of it, you know, whatever, but like they're, they've got articles about everything that's out there. And yes. if you've, you learn, you read something today from one of them and you're like, I don't quite get it. And then 15 years later, you're like, uh, yeah. 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 Like in my mind, history consists of like, I don't know, 200 people. <laughs> it's not bad. The history is not very big. It, it is it funny. Like Martin Fowler and then like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> There's a couple people in between. <laughs> the only difference is Martin Fowler ha- had a better computer and better internet access right? to like write all his stuff. Yeah, that is hilarious. Yeah, it's easy to see that all of the same names show up, and they did a lot of really incredible things. So that's good. And I'd like to see uh, see more no- more names. I hate to think of all the people that kind of get left out because yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I have mixed feelings about it because I know there's a lot of other people that are talking about similar ideas, but like people like Martin Fowler, just like they really hit the nail on the head when they write an article or like write a book about something they did and just really kind of stands out. And so even though there were a lot of people talking about whatever the various thing was at the time, sometimes like they just do such a good job of defining it. Yeah. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, a similar conversation that we had back with um, the pragmatic programmer, right? Where those guys uh, wrote about tracer bullets. Right. Yep. 
and now we refer to it as agile. Right. right. This article that you're referring to from Martin Fowler is 14 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not new oh, stuff. Yeah. It, the, the weird thing is, is it all comes in cycles, right? Like developers will, will, will do something. We'll find something painful and then we'll find something that made, made that pain go way easier. And then all of a sudden we want to do everything that way. And then we realize, okay, that was a bad idea. <laughs> we shouldn't have done everything that way. And then, and then we find other patterns, right? Like it happens throughout a developer's career that, you know, that, like the first time you find design patterns, right? Like you want to design pattern all the things and, and then you find out, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't have thrown in like some sort of crazy pattern here because I didn't really need it. So. Oh yeah. So the first time I saw, I heard about Docker. I'm like, that's dumb. And then by the 10th, 12th, 14th time, you know, like, Hey, this is pretty cool. Well, you Docker all the things. You can't overdo Docker. I'm sorry. That's, that does not fall into this category. Yeah. Well, no, there's just lots of things like microservices. First, first couple times I heard, yeah. I'm like, that's dumb. Now I'm like, you know, it's kind of cool. There's <laughs> some benefits. I'm, I'm slow adopter. Oh, it just, yeah. uh, there's some people out there that are pioneering, making the good stuff. So I need to figure out who the pioneers are today and then, uh, you know, follow on their boot heels. On their boot heels. That's okay. Got it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. So you asked earlier about does Kafka check all the boxes? And this is where, this is where we start to get into what was interesting about their approach with three factor app is they don't necessarily talk about Kafka. They don't talk about RabbitMQ. They don't talk about, um, MQ series or any of these other ones, right? They're basically talking about using database systems. And in these database systems, they talk about syncing data using change data captures or some sort of triggers to fire off that the applications could be aware of. Right. So that's where it was kind of interesting is like, there's these technologies available to answer these problems, but you can see a lot of the things that are, that they mention are actually built on top of databases. The Hasura, I think is what they're called. Yeah. Um, like they even wrote something for I was about to say. Postgres. Yeah. They wrote a GraphQL uh, implementation for Postgres. Yeah. So that basically so. as data hits Postgres, then it can emit an event out to the application server that goes back. So yeah, I, that's why I said, yeah, Kafka checks all the boxes, but that's not necessarily the route they went when they were designing this three factor app thing. Well, that's why I'm, I'm calling out, like I'm questioning like, okay, uh, you know, was there a reason, like, could, they were very specific with the first factor, right. right? Now we're in vague territory. Yes, very. Right? And knowing that they are a, you know, comp- a database company, mm-hmm. right, then it's kind of like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, why? Yeah. Yeah. So check this out. So they provide a, a GraphQL wrapper around Postgres, right? Mm-hmm. But they also offer real-time subscriptions and live queries. So you can take a database query, say, this is what I want to subscribe to, and it'll just watch that because they've got something that's kind of inserted there somewhere around the log layer that's watching for those sort of uh, events and updates. Yep. So it's it's very similar to change data capture. If you're not familiar with what that is in a database, usually there's like SQL Server has it. I'm sure Postgres and many of these other ones do. But basically, when something, some data hits a table, then it can notify something that's, that's waiting to be, to be notified about it. Right. So 
Yeah, I wanted to bring that up uh, just for a second, just because uh, I, I think kind of like to explain it like a naive level, one way to do it would just be to like query a table every 10 seconds and look for, you know, either like a timestamp or, uh, you know, a, a number to go up, like basically, uh, you know, like a row, row version, version type of thing. Yeah. But there's companies out there that have inserted themselves at a much lower level and they actually watch those right ahead transaction logs, which is kind of a, a feature of uh, those relational databases where they kind of write stuff to logs in case they go down or whatever. In case there's a problem, they can roll that stuff back. And that's kind of how they keep track of stuff. So now there are these companies that are watching these logs and then kind of replicating those changes out to systems like Kafka or whatever. And so I, I just think that's a really cool uh, kind of field. And there's a couple of companies here. Like we mentioned Hasura. Attunity is another big one. Uh, Debezium, Kafka Connect is something that's uh, a little bit more higher level, but it's just kind of cool to see there's these organizations and tools that are, are doing stuff kind of at, at varying levels here. And you've got a couple things to choose from. But I thought it was really cool. There's also uh, the ability to do triggers. If you've ever done something where you're like, you set up a custom trigger on a database. So when uh, a change is made, then your database will go ahead and cu- call some sort of custom action or do some you know, custom execution that will uh, relay that change out there. Uh, I, I always try to stay away from triggers if I have another option just because, I don't know. It just seems feels kind of wrong to me, but I've never understood that. By the way, people that yeah. avoid triggers in databases, like the only only reason I don't like them is because they're sort of hidden logic. Well, that's the way. That's the reason. That's that's the only reason. But the thing is, they exist to fulfill some purposes. So as long as you're trying to fulfill a purpose that makes sense, like writing before there were temporal tables, writing to an audit log, like. That's a perfect example of where a trigger makes sense to me. And I just knew so many people that were like, no, 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 don't do a trigger. And I'm like, um, okay. Well, even <laughs> it's with- just always seemed weird to me. It would happen kind of in a weird spot. It was like kind of like outside the normal execution flow. So you make your update and you get a return message that says update made. And you've got this other action that's kind of running that's kind of invisible to you. It's kind of like running in the space between worlds. But you enforce logic there, right? Like that was that was always the thing is you always get the argument that, um, you know, people if somebody comes in and updates a hundred records in the database, how do you enforce the other logic that's supposed to happen after that? A trigger, right? Like, but what happens if the trigger fails? Eh, but if every the trigger fails. What if you, you insert problems. the data and the trigger fails? Well, then then you got other issues, right? Like if Maybe. if your if your infrastructure is not working the way it's designed to work, then then can't help you there, but, but the thing was like, like the perfect example is this whole order, order details thing, right? Like if you go and update your order details table and that should have updated the order total in your orders table and you have people munging, you know, munging around in the database doing that and you know, people are going to do that. Then the best way to enforce that is through a a trigger, right? Anytime you update the order details, then it should roll up and update the order total amount, right? That's if you were working in a world where people are doing everything in the database and people have their hands on the database. Hopefully you have an application controlling that logic, but that's not the reality everywhere, right? So that's where I think triggers matter, but. Well, I mean, even like you mentioned, um, even you said something about like before temporal tables, but even with temporal tables in like a Postgres environment, it's done via triggers. Mm. Yeah. So uh, my new favorite book has a little section on trigger based replication. And what they say about it is basically that it's got greater overheads than some of the other methods we've talked about, like watching those write-ahead logs. And it's a little bit more prone to limitations, but it's flexible. So it's basically like 
It's okay. There's other ways of doing it though. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're watching the transaction log, sure, fine. That's, you know, whatever. It's, it's yeah, almost it's like heavyweight solution. Right. Yeah. I mean, you got to have some real knowledge in order to do that kind of stuff. It's almost like, uh, uh, when we talked about aspects back in the day, right? Like, okay, totally. You can do some aspect oriented stuff and it's doing some IL weaving, right? Like you if do, you're using PostSharp, if you're using PostSharp or, or yeah. some of the other solutions out there. And so it's performant. And it's performant because it's changing the underlying code that's being run. That's the unique thing about PostSharp. So PostSharp is heavy-handed in that regard. Right. Most most aspect-oriented uh, uh, implementations in C-sharp or in the .NET space don't work like that. They're using reflection and other things, which are heavier, and that's why they're not as… Well, heavier are on the runtime. Maybe. On the runtime, right. On they the add some overhead. So, anyway, I digress with all that. I, I just have never understood the the hatred for triggers. I, I get I get it a little bit, but whatever. Yeah, let us know in the comments. Yeah. All right, Nate, the DBA. I'm I'm watching <laughs> watching those comments. <laughs> uh, this episode is sponsored by O'Reilly Velocity Conference. To get ahead today, your organization needs to be cloud native. The 2019 Velocity Program in Berlin, November 4th through the 7th, will cover everything from Kubernetes and site reliability engineering to observability and performance to give you a comprehensive understanding of applications and services and stay on top of the rapidly changing cloud landscape. Learn new skills, approaches, and technologies for building and managing large-scale cloud-native systems and connect with peers to share insights and ideas. Join a community focused on sharing new strategies to manage, secure, and scale the fast and reliable systems your organization depends on. Get expert insights and essential training on critical topics like chaos engineering, cloud-native systems, emerging tech, serverless, production engineering, and Kubernetes, including an on-site CKAD prep and certification. Velocity will be co-located with the Software Architecture Conference this year, which presents an excellent opportunity to increase your software architecture expertise. Get access to all of Software Architecture's keynotes and sessions on Wednesday and Thursday, in addition to your Velocity Pass access for just 445 euros. Listeners to Coding Blocks can get 20% off most passes to Velocity when you use the code BLOCKS, all caps, B-L-O-C-K-S during registration. All right. So it's that time to talk about reviews because <laughs> reviews are super helpful for us. We really appreciate it. We love reading the names. We love reading, reading those reviews and it really helps us out a lot. So got to ask you, please, if you haven't done so already, go to codingblocks.net slash review. We've got a couple links there that will hopefully make it uh, easy and painless for you. And we really super duper appreciate it for real. All right. With that. We will head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. <clears throat> Are you mocking me over there, Joe? I see you. I, <laughs> You're doing his head. Yeah. You got to get about? your mouth away from the microphone when it gets louder. That's yeah. Right. All right. So back a few episodes ago, we asked, when you want to bring in a new technology or take a new approach when implementing something new or add to the tech stack, do you A, ask peers if it's a good idea before implementing it, the voice of many carries more weight, or B, ask the relative team lead if you can implement it. If the boss doesn't like it, it doesn't matter. Or C, 
implement a proof of concept and get stakeholders to weigh in because if they don't know about it, they need to be sold on it. Or D, just do it. I can't waste precious time checking if others like my idea. And lastly, E, abandon it. It's already too much effort. All right. Uh, memory's fuzzy on who went first, so Joe, I'll pick you. All right. I'm going to say that when you want to bring in a new technology, take a new approach, that you are going to be ask the relative team lead if you can implement it. And I'm going to say that that got 37%. B at 37. All right. So am I supposed to pick what I'd do or what the others would do? <laughs> you can play the game however you choose. That's your strategy. Okay. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say that most people said C. Implement a proof of concept and get a stakeholder get, and get the stakeholders to weigh in. Cause if they don't know about it, they need to be sold on it. The best way to prove this stuff is to show somebody. I'm going to hope that that was it, and we'll go with 20%. <laughs> There's less than five. Okay. So, easy. so There's five options. <laughs> so so you're not very confident in your answer. Not so uh, Alan is C at 20%, and Joe is B at 37%. Is that That's, correct? That is correct. So Joe is asked the relative team lead, 37%, and Alan is implement a proof of concept at 20%. And Alan wins it. Woohoo! All right. It was how bad off <laughs> almost forty-one percent of the vote. Wow. Okay. Implement a proof of concept and get the stakeholders to weigh in. I like it. I'm super excited that people chose that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I rock on. All I gotta say about that. What was what was number two? Was it was it Joe's? Super close second was Ask Pierce if it's a good idea. Interesting. Wow. Nobody cares about the okay, boss. man. Nobody Rebels. cares about the boss. That's just a worthless job is what apparently our audience is telling us. Okay, like, but hold on. Number three, abandon it. <laughs> actually, abandon it wasn't even – it was like the last option. Nice. Like that one, that one super surprised me. I honestly expected that one would get a little bit more love than it did. So, so we've got, we've got proof of concept as peers. So the next one's going to be just do it. Uh, yeah, just do it. Yeah. We've got some real go getters. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nobody actually, no, no, no. I, boss. Take, I take, I take that back. No, no, no. Ask the relative team lead was the, was the next one. Okay. Just okay. do it was, was, you know, next uh, to last. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that is, we got some go getters. We got people that like to see some change. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. I like to see that fire. I like it. All right. So kind of keeping in line with that survey, today's survey is <clears throat> what's the first thing you do when picking up a new technology or stack? And your cha- choices are take a course like on educative.io maybe or Google the pros and cons and share the ones that support your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> or being the best practices. Pray there are some. Or lastly, find the Stack Overflow answer that you most agree with and supports your theory. I'm looking forward to these answers. Very much so. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. 
Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. But there's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Meet educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment, allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly, they're engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth like a book. No need to scrub through hours of video just to get to the parts you really want to focus on. And amazingly, all of the courses that they offer have free trials and a 30-day return policy, so there's no risk. You can try a course today, like something like a practical guide to GraphQL from the client perspective. Now, does that sound relevant to the topics we've been discussing recently, like especially our last episode, right? Like you, that's you, if you didn't already know GraphQL, I highly recommend it. And here's the great thing, like Joe said about the, you know, no need to set up your environment. You can do this from your iPad, for example, or whatever your tablet of choice is. You don't have to have all of the tools and everything installed on your local environment. You can code and and learn it right there all from your, your laptop or from your iPad. And I'll tell you, I've been, oh, sorry, but I wanted to add this part too, because Going back to that GraphQL conversation, there was this amazing little story here that I had to share when we were talking about like, oh, how do you compare REST to GraphQL, right? And have you ever heard of the sandwich comparison? You have? No. Well, okay. I see Joe saying no. Alan's saying yes. I don't feel so bad then because I guess we have no, no, yes then is where we're at. But there is the... They said to think of it like this. You want a sandwich with only bread, cheese, cucumbers, lettuce. So you walk into a restaurant where the only option on the menu is sandwich. And you place an order and you receive a sandwich that has bread, salami, lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, and cheese. And then you then remove everything you don't want in order to eat the sandwich that you wanted. Right? How many of us have been to that in that situation? Right? <laughs> That's how the REST API works. However, when you visit the GraphQL cafe, you realize you can specify what toppings you want on your sandwich and receive it just the way you want it. That type of thing is from the practical guide to GraphQL. So now I'll tell you about the one I've been working through lately, which is grokking the system design interview. And it's got a whole bunch of really great breakdowns on, uh, and when I say a whole bunch, I mean 15, uh, systems that you've heard about, like tinyurl, uh, Instagram, Dropbox, Facebook Manager, Messenger, Twitter. You can click into any one of these and see a really thorough write up about how that company works. Big architecture. I'm talking about it goes everything like from the schemas involved to like the size of the databases and the decisions they made as to like what kind of technologies and databases and queues and whatnot that they used. And you can see like a really thoughtful breakdown at from high to low levels. And it's really impressive. Uh, it's got 15. It's got a really big appendix too, full of uh, really good information on things like consistent hashing and 
uh, redundancy, uh, cap theorem, all sorts of stuff like that that maybe you've heard of, maybe you, you haven't. But either way, if you're interested in like high level kind of architectural stuff and really examining some of these large organizations like, uh, you know, YouTube or a web crawler or Facebook's newsfeed, then you've got to check this course out. And like uh, Outlaw said, there's a, a 30 day return policy. So you can afford to give it a shot. And if you're not feeling it, then you, you know, you can go through that refund policy. So. I definitely recommend checking out if that's something you're at all interested in. Cool. And as these guys pointed out right now, you can go ahead and get started learning today by heading to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks, and you'll get 20% off any course. All right. Now, there are a couple of downsides of having an immutable event log at the center of your application. Like information isn't instantly queryable and you can do some snapshots and there's some kind of techniques that kind of help with that a little bit but it's kind of like we'd mentioned before where it's not really easy to just get a kind of pinpoint snapshot of how things are right now without kind of doing some processing there and by the way that one's huge and that's what outlaw was saying previously is like replaying stuff just to find out you know what the state of the order is like that's Sort of crazy town, right? Like that, that's, uh, that seems like a very basic thing. Like, what's the total amount of sales we had in the past week? What's the balance in my bank account? Right. You got to replay yeah. everything, replay that- every transaction since the moment I opened the account. Right. And so this whole thing about snapshotting is periodically saying, hey, what was the state of this person's account as of 12 noon today, right? And then you save that in another record somewhere that says, hey, this was the baseline. And then that way, if you need to replay anything after that, you can use that as a baseline and then play all the events on top of that one, right? But you still, it's not a simple query. Like, think about reporting. This would kind of be a pain in the butt. Yeah, so uh, you basically need some specialized application logic or you're bringing in a whole other database system now to go along with your database in order to make it usable, which is a pretty tough sell. Yep. And then here was this also going back to the Martin Fowler uh, library of things. This is where something like CQRS comes into play. This is command query responsibility segregation. And... This you can solve this in multiple ways, but it can get a little bit complex. So what CQRS essentially does is it separates the models for querying data and the commands for writing data. So you could essentially have like two separate applications and two separate data stores even, right? So your data rights might be going to a database and also to maybe an Elasticsearch or something like that. And your reads may only be coming from Elasticsearch. Like you could break it up however you want because essentially you're doing two totally walled off things. Yeah, and that's uh that sounds really goofy when you say it like that. But when you think about it, most distributed systems have this kind of problem anyway. Like once you get to where you're dealing with a couple different systems and a couple different data stores, and you're constantly living in this world, just a matter of degrees at that point. And it's really frustrating and it has a lot of problems, but Thinking that you're truly like, you know, in sync and all your data stores across the board at all times is, uh, it's just not true. It's a, it's a lie you may tell yourself and it, you know, may work out for the best most of the time, but it's, you know, it's, it's a very real possibility that the stuff is not quite in sync. There's always some sort of like margin of error on them. And that's actually the next bullet point is eventual consistency. 
We, we talked about um, the CQRS, by the way, back in episode 48 when we were covering clean code. It's been a minute. How to write amazing functions. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it, the good side, the good thing, though, is that by you referencing this Martin Fowler, at least article, it, the Martin Fowler article, at least we're like moving up a little bit in time, <laughs> you know, because this one only goes back to 2011. So wow. we're getting yeah. more current. That's just us rolling forward in our Martin Fowler transaction log. There we go. That's good. Yeah. So if you got, I think we're, we're talking about like the cutting edge here, <laughs> GraphQL and Qs. It's like, no, nah, it's like 2011 just called and said. They want their uh, concepts back. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do think that a big part of this and why, why people are talking about streaming more and more now and GraphQL and stuff like that is basically the tooling's got to like a good maturity level now where it's easy to do. It works really well. There's a lot of good documentation out there. And people are doing really cool stuff. With, like we, we talked about Uber last episode. There are people building really cool, really relevant, neat, useful applications now that would have been really hard to do in 2011. Oh, yeah. Totally. So here was another downside of this, and this is what I mentioned earlier, is forcing event sourcing on every part of the system introduces some complexity that you may not need, right? So, you know, that was what I was saying is us developers, we tend to, we find a new shiny toy and we want to play with that toy a lot, right? And so we're going to make that thing fit everywhere. And it may not, it may not make sense, right? Like event sourcing may not be the answer for every little thing that you're trying to do. So uh, evolving applications, which is uh, an, another tough thing. We didn't actually talk about this earlier. We'll, we'll talk about it now, I guess. Uh, changing businesses require a change to like various different schemas. So what we're talking about here is basically if you put a bunch of you know order messages in a, a topic as they came along, and now you need to change the data type. Like say you you made a mistake and you <laughs> had a an integer where you needed a float or you needed to drop a new field or rename a new field or split up these concepts to do multiple queues now instead of one big object. And you've got a real problem on your hand because you've got all these things that were processed and were, you know, used to using or being used by version one of the application. Now you are here with uh, version two, which has a different message format. And so some of the different messages and some of the different schemes that people come up with for dealing with this uh, support some sort of like schema evolution that fits nicely with applications but some of them don't. And either way, you're probably in for some amount of pain. And so when we're dealing with immutable messages that and basically allowing for your application to grow, then you've got some serious challenges there that you have to deal with. Yeah, this one, one of the one of the ways that people try to deal with this is one of the things is called upcasting. And this is basically taking the old record format and trying to convert it on the fly to the new schema format. Um, but the problem is now you have completely defeated the purpose of these immutable events, right? Like the whole purpose of this, this event stream thing was these were immutable. You can just use them, right? And, and replay them. So it's no longer that. Now you're converting these things on the fly to make them meet the current business logic or, or however things need to read these things. Yeah, and that's the thing I, I like at least about this is like, you know, we keep talking about like agile is the way of the future. Agile is the way to go, you know, move fast, break things. Ooh, until we come to talking about messages and queues and streaming because uh, try not to change stuff. And if you do try to only add new things that aren't required because right. otherwise it gets really tough. We have to keep around the old code forever if we ever need to reprocess, which we said was like one of the fundamental advantages of this. So now suddenly if there's a fundamental advantage that – uh, requires quite a bit of maintenance to, to keep up. Mm -hmm. 
So this is the next one that they have. So we just talked about upcasting. This other one's called lazy upcasting is evolving the event records over time. But that means you're now maintaining code that knows how to understand the old, which is what Joe just said and the new. So you've potentially got branching logic in your application. Now, not multiple versions of the application, but branching logic in your application to be able to handle the V one events, the V two events, three, et cetera. Right. That could get really ugly and that could really make for a fragile application, right? Your events are great because those things are always there and they're immutable, but now your application has to know how to decipher all that. And that can be a real, a real problem. Yeah. We didn't have that problem with the, the queuing systems in the days of York. So you put, you plucked the message off, it was gone and then it was done. So the message was never going to come back again. Right. But now if someone wanted to reprocess the pizza cooking from three years ago, then we got a problem. And one of the big ways that too, that people mitigate this is by only keeping data around for a certain amount of time. Like we mentioned Kafka, it keeps data around retention policy of seven days by default. So it's not that you're keeping necessarily everything around. Obviously for a bank, that's another story. But for, you know, pizzas, do we really need to keep around last year's pizza you know, history? So, you know, there, there's trade-offs there and there's things you can do. But uh, it just – it means more thinking about your data than you probably want to do. That just sounds like I think I threw up a little bit in my ears <laughs> listening to this whole upcasting and lazy upcasting and having to maintain multiple versions. Because then I was thinking about it and I'm like – Ah, crap, man. You're not even talking about like having to maintain multiple support for multiple versions on one side either. You're talking about both the, the caller that might put the event on there might have to know how to deal with either. Am I thinking of that wrong? I don't know if the caller, but definitely the responder. The reader and the writer yeah. can both be writing different versions, and some versions can be compatible with others, and some not. Oh, that's and a good point. There's some really sophisticated tools, like I, I don't know if we've mentioned Avro yet or not, but uh, it's basically a format that kind of supports having different versions of readers and writers that can communicate. And there are certain rules that you have to adhere to, and the schema that you kind of communicate with actually enforces those rules. So it's really nice that you can you can have that. You can break those rules, <laughs> you can force things, but. It does have mechanisms for it, but I mean, ultimately it boils down to the same thing where it's like all it's really doing is like forcing the ability to do that upcasting or downcasting. So it's all gross no matter what. And it, it really, it means having to know a lot about your entire ecosystem or it means doing a lot of work to support multiple different versions of things, which right. is gross either way. Right. Cause I swear we just talked about something recently and I'm thinking it was GraphQL where one of the main advantages was you no longer had to worry about supporting multiple versions of your API because when you added things in, it was backwards compatible. And I'm pretty certain that that was part of our GraphQL conversation. That was GraphQL, but that was the schema for GraphQL on the server side. So yeah, you can, you can add stuff to it and it'll work fine. You don't have to version it because you can make that thing work. But now the stuff that's backing that, that's going and pulling data out of the event streams is going to have to know how to convert that stuff on the fly. Can I unhear this conversation? (laughs) This hurts, right? With things like, uh, say, like your, there's different messaging and coding formats, but things like, um, like thrift and, uh, Google protocol buffers that basically has these notions of like required fields. And if you set a, a field that's required, it can never, ever, ever be unrequired. And you later can't go to an existing message format and add a required field. So 
things get pretty tough there. And you can imagine if you got your GraphQL using that stuff as this transport mechanism, then it knows like, hey, I've got required fields here. I can always rely on them. And in, in the application, if you require an, uh, if you require a field that isn't required in your transport, then one day you're going to get bit. And, and by the way, the the survey, the latest survey about, you know, find the thing that supports what you like best in the three factor app, there were none of these downsides listed, right? Like we had to go <laughs> dig these up to be like, wait a second, there's some counterpoints to these yeah. event, these event streams, right? Like yeah. there are reasons why these aren't the only way that people write any apps. So, well, um, and honestly, they say that there are numerous benefits and then they only list three. Right, right. They didn't put a ton. So, so yeah. <laughs> so another, so we talked about upcasting. We talked about these, this lazy upcasting. Another thing is every time you change that schema, you up convert everything to the latest, right? Hmm. That to me, now I'm going to be honest, that requires some overhead, right? Like if you've got, you know, a billion events that are in some old schema and you're going to migrate to a new schema, Updating that may take some time and it may take you down. I'll take that hit personally, if that's what we're doing, because now you keep everything in a consistent state, uh, a, a, a usable state. I would rather that than have branching logic in my code to know how to read 12 different versions of the schema. Okay. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a moment there. Okay. Is it that the three of us are coming at these downsides of the immutable log? conversation and you know when we talk about things like upcasting and lazy upcasting and converting the entire data set because w there's maybe like uh, an implicit bias where we're thinking of something like a kafka as how this reliable eventing gets implemented versus they didn't specifically list anything like Kafka or queuing or anything like that. And we know that they're a database company. So maybe that's why like they don't have to worry about these types of uh, downsides. So I don't think so because I mean, if we're talking about Kafka specifically, you don't have to have any kind of schema on anything. You could totally have one single topic and throw whatever data you want in that thing. So you can absolutely do that. There's nothing in Kafka that forces you to adhere to any particular message format or anything like that. Right. But you, it, they also wouldn't advise you to do that in a production environment too, right? Just like in Elastic, want. for example, you can, you could have that schema, schema wide open too, but they typically would recommend that you would lock it down. It's right? a different use case. So in Kafka, like a logging, like here's a good example would be a logging topic, right? Let's say you're taking logs from your Elastic, you're taking logs from your web server, you're taking logs from all kinds of other stuff. You could totally throw those all in the same topic just so you have one place that you can scan or, or look at for messages, right? So no, I don't think that's what it is. I, even if you think about backing up to a database system where you're going to use that with change data capture for whatever your event stream is, if you go add a bunch of columns to a particular database table, because, hey, this is my new stuff, right? Or if you modified an existing column and changed it to this other one, you still face those same challenges, right? Like you still have to go back and say, 
my application needs to understand what these changes mean. Yeah, but the difference, though, is in that case, if you were to add a new column to a database, right, you could make that column be, like, not nullable, for example, and have a default constraint. And there are ways that where you could, like, you know, there, there are practices out there where, like, okay, if it's an existing table that already has data, you might, like, add the column, let it be nullable, add the default value, then add the not null constraint to that new column with a default on it, right? You know, and then you and then your other code, even if it's not reading that column in or writing to that column, now you have a default constraint on it to where it could at least, you know, it won't error and the code doesn't have to know or or be aware that you changed that table. Right well, now, obviously, if you remove a column, or maybe if you change this data type, that might cause problems. It may not even be changing the columns. It might be, hey, when we initially started doing these events, the ID that we were keying off of was first name and last name, right? And nobody thought about the fact that John Smith was going to show up five hundred times in a city. And so, so in version two, you're like, you know what? Let's stop using the name. Let's start using the email address, right? So now your application has to know that V1 was using the first name, last name. V2 is now using the email address. So I think it goes beyond just the schema changes. It's how the data is used, written, and and you expect your application to be able to replay those events. And when you start changing either the schema or the data that was written to those things, you have a problem. I just wonder, though, like... I still kind of question though, that maybe like this is less of a, maybe this isn't as big a deal outside of Kafka. I don't know, man. So I I do want to say that um, like Kafka is kind of eating the streaming world. Like there are a couple alternatives like Flink is one I keep hearing about like storm, uh, different Apache products and, and you know, like Amazon's got Kinesis and AWS or uh, Azure's got uh, whatever their, you know, event hub. So there's there's definitely other kind of competing formats, but a lot of those support the same transports. So things like protocol buffers, uh, Avro, uh, Thrift, and those all kind of have this notion of schema evolution kind of baked into them because that's it's a common problem for the run into. So I, I don't think it's just a Kafka thing, but I do think it's heavily entrenched in that kind of streaming culture, and that streaming culture is becoming more and more synonymous with Kafka. So I don't really know where that line is, and you know maybe I'm biased just because you know what I'm working with. But um, I, I don't think it's totally exclusive. But I, I'll, I'll say this, though. Even though they have this schema evolution thing, that doesn't make your applications work. Just like in a database, if you add a column to a table or you remove a column from a table, your application's not automatically going to work with that change in most cases, right? Like, Well, the, re- the deletion of a column, the removal of a column or the changing the type of a column, I could definitely see that being a problem. Right. Right. Or maybe if you changed to your other point, maybe if you changed what the primary key was uh, or how that, you know, how that part worked, like I could see that causing problems, but like you could totally get away with like adding a new column that wouldn't cause that, that the application wouldn't have to know anything about and it would work fine. You can do that in Kafka too. And that's what I'm saying. So like the evolution of the schema, like what he's talking about, that's there for your convenience more or less. Like there are some tools that will take it into account and be like, Hey, this doesn't match, but that's an implementation detail. 
like that's not necessary. I think Joe even mentioned earlier, like you could totally ignore it. You can override it. You can be like, I don't care about the schema version. So you can totally do the same thing. You could add columns that don't matter at all. But if you are going to make any kind of breaking changes in your schema, whether it's a database or in, in any one of these queuing systems, you're going to have to handle that. And, and the last one was, you know, maybe you convert your entire set of data up to the latest version of what that event's supposed to look like. And we've run into that problem with like, um, you know, databases before, like you mentioned the, uh, adding a column, same with stored procedures. Like we used to have rules where it's like every time you added a stored procedure, make sure, you know, it, or rather uh, every time you add an argument to a stored procedure, always give it a default value that makes sense for yeah. existing applications. And it's just hard to evolve those schemas when you're dealing with multiple applications that aren't all going to be updated with a, you know, single atomic point of time. And, and it's actually even harder with eventing because now. Any kind of screw up you do along the way means that you can't even get back to the correct state of what this thing was, right? That the, that these events are supposed to add up to. So it, it's, it's definitely a consideration when you start wanting to make something go to a full on eventing system and immutable event system is these kind of schema migrations or changes in your application and data tiers. Can there are things that you have to put some serious consideration into. Um, here's another one that was kind of interesting. I hadn't even thought about it because I haven't really done any of these eventing systems. Is this consideration of how granular are your events, right? So what this means is how how many isolated events are too much and how many aren't enough, right? So if you're writing your order thing, right? Like, are you going to have an order event? Are you going to have order detail events? Do you need one for each item? Like if they ordered five of a particular item is having one line item with a quantity of five good enough, or do you need to have five for decrementing inventory or something like, you know, actually making the decision of where you split and say, this is enough information to represent a single event. Right. Like those are things it's almost like naming, like, Oh my God, naming's already hard. Now we got to figure out how to break up these events in a useful, meaningful way. Mm -hmm. It reminds me about, you know, like paintings, sometimes you'll buy them on the back and it'll say like one of 173 or, you know, something like that, some sort of like number, because it's not that there was some big box of, uh, you know, all these items that they were, you know, some unique part of a set. And so which one you buy out of that set, it has some sort of meaning or value. Yep. The meaning and value, the meaning and useful is a key part of this, right? So um, they actually said, if you have too many of these events, there's not going to be enough information on any one of them to be useful in any kind of way, right? Like it's, it's too granular. And if you have too few, then you're going to take a big, like if you think about like a JSON blob or something, you're going to take a big hit on serializing and deserializing this stuff when you need to go use it in your application. So it's, it's definitely an interesting thing that if you're not in this world, you're probably not even thinking about. I mean, at first, at first thought, when you talk about, okay, we, we love our e-commerce example. Yeah. So when you think about like, okay, if you were to make an event of, Hey, I'm going to add this line item to the cart. Right. <clears throat> and you might be tempted to think like, okay, well that kind of event, I mean, technically, yeah, it's an event. It is an, it is an event, but you know, is that too granular for this scenario? But then you kind of think about it and you're like, you know what though? Hmm. You could then, 
maybe remove the cap- like if you now scale out to a large e-commerce site like an Amazon or a Walmart or whatever now it's not necessary for the app server to care like you, your session doesn't have to be specific to a given app server mm-hmm. right because any app server could be picking up that that uh sh- that that stream it's a great point right i mean so even you know cuz cuz initially i was thinking like oh that seems kind of silly that that seems that seems almost like you've 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 gone plaid man like that's <laughs> you went you went you went off the deep end with it but then i'm like oh no i'm totally talking myself into it like yeah it's kind of cool what it offers you i mean here's where like this this particular article landed was okay so if too many is not good too few is not good what's the right if you are approaching this from a domain driven design perspective and you're using your ubiquitous language and talking about orders, what are the actions that can happen on an order, right? Added an item to an order, removed an item from an order, uh, returned an item, whatever, right? When you start thinking about that, what are the events that make up your domain-driven design use case? And then that's probably the right granularity. And I thought that was a good answer, right? That's that's taking your business needs into perspective and then using that to drive the data that's going to be behind the scenes. You know, one thing I wanted to mention, I, I just kind of thought about it, is like, whoa, uh, is that, you know, you got to keep in mind that we're talking about a certain type of application. Like this is not suitable necessarily for all, but what we're really talking about is high velocity, highly scalable apps. And we mentioned like Uber, Domino's Pizza, banking. One thing we didn't mention, I just realized uh, is a tool that we're using uh, right now, actually, <laughs> which is uh, basically Google Docs, right? We're in a drive. We've got three people here in one document that are all subscribed to events. And so when I kind of move from one cell to another or if I type something, everybody sees it because you're all subscribed to the same event. So we're in this case, we're all subscribing to one set of events. We all have the copies of the, the data in our browser. And we also have some sort of shared copy out on the net. So we've got a lot of events moving all over the place. Like I just clicked my mouse like 20 different times, you know, and so I just sent off like 20 different messages. So I think that um, while you might be thinking to yourself that these kind of applications aren't relevant to you, once you start really kind of like opening your eyes to different applications that you use in a different day and think about the ones that are really kind of stand out, I think you'll find that a lot of the apps that are doing some of the most interesting stuff that we're seeing on the web today are actually built in this kind of manner already. But do you think, so just following with that, like, I like, I like the example of this Google doc, but do you think they're actually writing these things out to an event stream? So for instance, like when you're mousing around, like, you know, you're moving your cursor up and down and you're clicking on things. Totally. This is happening through some sort of sockets that are going back to a server and it's talking to all three of our computers. Right. But do you think this is actually being writing? Writing? Do you think this is being? <laughs> do you think this is being written to some sort of event log somewhere? I don't know if it's persistent, but it would make sense to me that it'd be some sort of, um, you know, some sort of queue going on that kind of shows. It's either that, or basically you have to send like, you know, my current cursor, or, or uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, the only reason I say is I think you'd introduce so much latency into interactive apps like this. Right. To where it's like, yeah, we don't want to write this thing out. You know, maybe it'll snapshot some things at, at certain points in time, 
but well, we know it does because there's version history. Totally. When you when you do some things, but but like moving cursors around when you're not actually writing any data, if you're not cutting and pasting cells or anything like that, it seems like the overhead to it would be too much. Now I don't know. It, it's just a an interesting uh, aside to what you said. Yeah, uh, you can actually look at your network tab, and it's doing some weird stuff. <laughs> I can definitely see as I kind of click around and do things that uh, it sends a message for each one. It's actually not doing web, web sockets as far as I can tell. Oh, really? I miss, miss the hookup somewhere. Huh. Uh, Interesting. All right. So let, the let me last, and lose my place in the notes. <laughs> the last downside I had here for, for these event type systems is and this one was kind of interesting. Fixing bugs could be a little bit more of a pain because these are supposed to be immutable events. And if there was something wrong, then you got to sort of be able to rewrite that history to get it back into the correct state. So that might be a bit of a pain. Like, whereas if you think about a traditional um, transactional database system, you just go write an update query and you're like, boom, everybody's good. <laughs> Moving on. Nobody needs to know that there was a problem here. Right? Nothing to see. Right. There's nothing to see. Nothing to see here. But in this, you might have to figure out, hey, where do I need to insert a record in between these events or or whatever the case may be to try and get this thing back into a good state? Because remember, these event systems are more of a calculated state running it through some sort of algorithm. So that was kind of interesting. Hmm. So are we all watching our network tab right now? No. <laughs> oh. Um no, because then we'll be stuck in Cobalt and we won't figure out how to <laughs> read that thing again. And true, true. Um, no, no. I mean that that's definitely an interesting case that I hadn't thought about. Like, uh, and I'm curious. Like, well, would like I, we seem to be picking on Kafka tonight? Would it even allow you to do that? And I didn't nope. think that it could. I didn't think you could insert something in between. No, it would have to be at the end. Yeah, so in that case, you're just stuck. Yep, yep. It's uh, no it's kind of interesting. It maybe maybe that doesn't matter. I guess it depends on the application, right? Like it's impossible to know all the the uses of this. But yeah, it's it's definitely something to consider. I mean, it, to Joe's point earlier, probably what you do if you realize that you screwed up on a thousand orders is you'd probably take the data from that original topic write it to a new topic and be inserting those values you needed in between as you wrote those records. Right. And then you kill that old topic off. So that's how you'd fix it. Right. You'd basically, that sounds horrible. Yeah, I mean, like I'm used to going to the database, writing my little update, you know, and saying, whew, hoping you don't mess it up. But when you think about going to the database, writing your little update script as a developer, hitting it and few, you know, you're, hopefully you did it right. Like when you start thinking about like bigger and bigger scale, like uh -huh. higher velocity apps, like you're Uber, you don't want any developers logging into the production database right. and running ad hoc queries. Like you need to have better processes for fixing mistakes like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely not an easy thing. It, and you wouldn't, let's be honest, you wouldn't even want people doing that with a database. Sure, you could write an insert record in between your other records. You still wouldn't want that because we're talking about things at scale here, probably, more than likely. I'm still trying to figure out like any system that where you could like insert this other action in between after the fact. You could do like, it in a database. What does that even mean? You could do it in a database, but you'd probably have to fudge the timestamp or something, right? On <laughs> the records in between. 
Yeah, it's dirty. Like, and I guess that's the whole point of these immutable systems is, Hey, this was the state. This is what happened. And if you want to put a fix in, probably what you should do is insert a record at the end and say, Hey, this is how I fixed the state. It's yeah. I mean, I'm sure that people have worked with these event systems a lot. They've come up with clever ways because they've been in that situation where it's like, Oh, we really messed that up. Got to fix it. I mean, everything that comes to mind would only be you doing something at the end to just like correct this state. It's like, the one that makes the most sense. Nothing, nothing, nothing is coming to mind where it's like, oh yeah, here's an easy button for where you could like inject something in and then replay it so that it then later works correctly. Uh, it's dangerous, right? That just doesn't even seem. That's like yeah. you rewriting Git history up on the server. I know you don't like that. So. Well, now you went there. So <laughs> now like I'm like, Kafka. okay, well, yeah, I guess. It's happened. Yeah. Get rebase and push, baby. It's done. Well, with Kafka in particular, like it's got this whole notion of kind of offsets, which is how it keeps track of things. And then all this stuff is laid out on disk. And it doesn't have mechanisms for like updating. All that stuff has to kind of happen afterwards. So if you think about what it takes to actually insert a, a record into the middle of something, it's like, oh, you can't just insert. It's like inserting into an array. You got to like bump everything else down, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not just changing, changing one message. It's like kind of changing everything there on after. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's a weird concept. And the, all the data, even for the offsets is kind of kept out separately from the consumer. So it's really hard to, to mess with the data. You have to really work hard even just to read it. So modifying is out of the question. You'd probably jack up so much stuff if you tried <laughs> to force that hand. Like it, it would not be worth it. Yeah, you'd be like modifying files on on someone else's disk. Yeah, it, it's yeah. it's not worth it. So a lot of these a lot of these things that that came in these downsides here, I got from an article on Medium, which I've grown to hate more over time. So <laughs> I apologize for that. Oh, you not see the thing like? Oh, we see that you've read three articles this month. Would you? Yeah, I'm like, man, get oh. off me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's driving me crazy and I get it. Yep. People want to get paid, but man, don't create a site. That's all about people sharing information and then try and block their information from the world. Like, yeah, they don't block the Google bot, do they? Right. Man. Yeah, it, I hate paywalls. It drives drive me crazy. It, paywalls. I'm okay with, but medium was never set up to be a site for a paywall, right? Like it's not the New York times, you know, that, wait a minute. I, yeah. I'm not seeing what you're seeing then. Really? I get the thing that pops up a lot where, where it'd be like, pardon our interruption, and you could just be like, up, oh, close it. And, and you can still read the article. Yeah, yeah, you could still read the article. But I, I'm talking maybe about Maybe I misread that though, because it was just like wanting you to sign in. It wants you to sign in so it can track what you're looking at and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, dude, get off me. Yeah, like, I just don't sign in. Yeah, I don't either. But yeah, I just, I, those things annoy me. They do let you read the articles, which right. is good. It could, because it could be worse. Like when you talk about a paywall. Yeah. If that happens, there will be um, mutiny. Max.com instead of medium.com. I don't know. Yeah. Somebody's going to change it. Max? <laughs> Max. Or men. Men.com. Maybe. I don't know. Oh, oh Max. Like <laughs> yeah, the maximum. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I think they would just have to spell it out at that point to avoid confusion. Otherwise, Apple might. Or we uh, could call it large.com, small.com. I don't yeah. know. Whatever. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking psychic.com. Psychic? Yeah, I never thought of medium as in like the middle. I always thought it was like medium as in like a spirit medium or maybe like a medium as in like a transport protocol. I don't. So when you said like min or max, I'm like, what? 
You know what? Like, I don't think if I had stared at that word for the next 50 hours, if the spiritual world would have ever entered my mind. That's okay. Cause I went to a third, to, I went to a third place. Where'd you go? We all went to a different place because every time I've ever seen medium.com, I just assumed the writing medium. It was like, this is the medium by which I plan to share. Right. Okay. Yeah, right. I, I could find that more easily than I could the uh, the uh, this the is oracle. My, this is my medium. <laughs> well, I guess you guys don't watch the Hollywood medium then. No, I've never heard of it. Oh, it's for real, man. Tyler Henry. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I thought he was joking for real, and then he doubled down. Yeah, I have no idea what he's talking about. So much better than Teresa. Okay. Anyway, yeah. All right, I'm lost. It's Long something out. we have to you look guys. At. <laughs> you guys. Look at how upset he is. That's the best part. I, I know, and you guys got to watch some more TV. Wait, you yeah. said this is called the Hollywood Medium. Let me Google this. Yeah, Tyler Henry, and then there's Teresa, the Long Island Medium. You're yeah. just you're just making all kinds of names up. This does nothing for I, me. I man. think it's better because we're also looking like for those who can't see it. If you see the video when and if it ever comes out, you'll notice that like it's the 1930s version of Joe that we have on screen. <laughs> it's just so emotional. It just you guys. Like you're surprised that there's even like you can even hear the voice instead of it just being like silent film every now and then from him. Dude, what's so special about this Tyler Henry? He just looks like a goofy dude. He's just really connected to the spiritual world. He like scribbles on his little notebook and then he like just asks these questions that just mm, they just grab you in the soul. This this absolutely bears me like almost negative interest. <laughs> uh, whatever. See, right. but there's the catch almost. Oh, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> like one of the I, mean, I never speak ill of the ghosts and the poltergeists around me. Uh, you know, I like how he looks over his shoulder as he says it. The, the poltergeist sucked the color out of his room, actually. Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> uh, They're here. All right, so then the last little bit that we're going to cover here is they had this reference implementation, which really was not a reference implementation. I thought it was kind of odd that they called it that when really it was just a few bullet points of what they do, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, and I want to knock on them, right? They at least wrote the articles. We didn't. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, we're so lazy. Yeah, yeah. So they have changed data capture, which we mentioned. That's for shipping events from a database to your applications. Um, you could also do triggers, which we also mentioned, and then the event sourcing, which is this whole notion that you can rewind and replay these things. So, uh, it was all stuff we'd already talked about, but I figured it was on there. So we'd re-mention it. You know, all they right. do have a uh, sample application you can start up with. It's a Hasura, but they've got like a Docker compose file. There's a couple of things you can like spin up a thing, a, a free tier on uh, Heroku. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's got a Docker Compose file here that spins up. Uh, I don't know. I can't actually get the thing open. Hey, look, if there is a Docker Compose, I will try anything. Mm. Yeah. Once. You know what? Though? <laughs> they named it DockerCompose.yaml, which offends me. Wait, do you do why? I was going to mess with this right now, but now I don't know. You're not, you're not going for the YAML. It needs to be YAML. YAML. You need no, it I to be that. You need it to be YAML. <laughs> right, maybe I'll still mess up. But yeah, it looks like it uh, starts you up with a pretty nice little console here. So you actually can see their, their Hasura console and kind of get started with the basic, uh, hello world and kind of take it from there. Cool. So you would choose the option to use the tutorial then is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, and I would probably get halfway through it before I realized I knew everything and went off on my own and then regretted it. <laughs> Wait, this is not the Joe that we are yeah. typically accustomed to. Yeah, I was about to say. No, 
Like, wait, I was what? being realistic. I would say, like, I'm just going to work through every tutorial I can find, then I'll learn everything about it. And But realistically, I started, like, tutorial one, and I'm like, oh, this is too slow. I already know. Like, even just now, I'm like, oh, let me look at their app first. It's like, uh, step one, blah, blah. Step two. Ooh, Docker Compose. Like, let me go download it. I go to the <laughs> GitHub repository, and there's not a, a Docker Compose at the very root of it. I'm like, ugh. I kind of do the same thing, man. Like, if the first three paragraphs bore me, I'm like, all right, where's the end? Yeah. All right, let's go to the last step before the end. And then and then you're mad because you feel pain and you're like, oh, I missed the one sentence in the yeah. middle of that 12,000-word page. Man, whatever. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll have a couple of resources if we like, uh, including to Hasuro, that reference implementation, um, implementation, and, of course, the three-factor app. So you can check that out on our amazing show notes. All right, and with that, we will head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. I still find it funny, by the way, that we call this tip of the week and we record every two weeks. We're more consistent than we used to be, which was like every three or four weeks, but still not every week. Well, Well, I have a tip every week. You just don't get to hear it every week. Ooh, could be. That's a lie. That is a lie. Man, people that listen to this every week, that's a lot of listening. All right, anyways. (laughs) All right. So, uh, you know, we, we're giving Docker a lot of love. Uh, we've talked, you know, just just minutes ago, you're giving Docker some love. So, uh, you know, it's a thing. And so what if you want to take control of your Docker environment? So you've pulled down all these Docker images. You ran that Docker Compose file. And you're like, hey, you know what? Like, how much space am I using <laughs> for all? I mean, Docker is great, but like, really, like, how much space am I using? How much space is being eaten up? So, uh, with the system subcommand for Docker, you can specifically use the DF command and you can find out just how much space you are using, how many containers, how many images, how many local volumes, all that, your build cache, and how much disk space those uh, various types are using, right? So it would be, the command would be docker space system space DF, and you can see that. But just in the system uh, subcommand, you know, in general, there are other uh, commands that you could execute. Namely, you might want to do a prune if you wanted to remove some of that unused data. So something like docker uh, space system space prune. Or just find like information about it. So if you wanted to do a system info, uh, or or get real time events from it. There's a system events, so that's my command. These these are legit. These are legit tips too, because I've definitely had Docker things before, and I've pruned the system and uh, and like recovered six gigs. Oh yeah, man. Gigs. Yeah, I, I'm I'm well into double digits. Uh, looking at it on my system here, and uh. And even on like, you know, the, the work laptop, I'm well into double digits there too. And, and basically like what got me thinking about this is I was like, uh, noticing like, man, I didn't think I was using that much disk space on my system. <laughs> Where did it all go? And then I'm like, oh yeah, DF, there you go. Yeah. And it's actually hidden stuff, right? Like you're not going to it, see it. It is not in your face. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great, great tip. And that's what got me thinking about it because like you do a, like a, a Docker image LS, mm-hmm. right? To just see what images you have pulled down. And, uh, earlier today, uh, you know, on my work machine, I, I happened to be like, Oh yeah, let me go and see like what images I had. And it was a long list that came back. And I'm like, whoa, 
that's got to be like eating up something, right? Like, how much could it be eating up? Whoa, that's how much is eating up. Okay, I might need to prune. Oh, <laughs> it man. might, I might be due. I've got yep. so many more tips that I've got to give now. All right, so I guess into mine. So the very first one I'm going to share from, I believe it was Martin on Twitter. So in the previous episode, I gave the Control Shift Z inside Visual Studio and the amazing clipboard history that you could do inside there so you didn't lose your stuff, so you weren't paranoid about doing another control cut, right? And I think they called it the the ring, right? It was the clip ring. It, it was ring something, something really like weird, yeah. Oh. There was a specific name for it. It should just be the awesome uh, clipboard history. Hold on, I'm going to look it up real quick. Studio. But clipboard ring. Clipboard ring? Yeah. Okay. So there's actually a feature in Windows 10, the later versions here, um, whichever one they're on that Martin shared, that actually has this feature for clipboard history in Windows. And he's, I've got a link here that is really nice. You go up there and you have to enable it in windows first, which is interesting, but in order to do the controls or to do the copy paste, it's windows C windows V to do that. But here's the thing that you need to know about it that you have to be careful about. And I want to call this out. So you just don't go enable it blindly and not think about this stuff is it will actually retain your clipboard even between reboots. So if you're one of those people that copies and pastes passwords all over the place, please make sure that you go in and clear out that history. You know, don't, don't let that stuff stay around. That'll never happen. It won't ever happen, but I've warned you. So, um, now (laughs) my consciousness is clear. (laughs) My consciousness is clear. All right. So because outlaw gave the awesome tip of the Docker system commands, I want to give you one that actually Joe is the one that shared with me uh, probably a month or two ago because I truly oh, had. Man. What? Were you going to try to take it? You didn't type it. Yeah, I should have used it a month or two ago. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> I was going to say, you can't have it now, man. Um, So this, so I do a lot of Docker Compose things. So if you're not aware of Docker Compose, it allows you to kind of spin up a bunch of different services at once and it'll put them all on the same network so they can communicate, all that kind of stuff, right? Awesome. The problem is, is when these containers are running, they have a tendency to write a lot of logs. They have a lot of data that happens. And if you turn on debugging logs, then it's just, it's constantly throwing that stuff out on disk, right? Well, if you Docker Compose down, it doesn't kill those volumes, those things are still hiding back in the middle of nowhere, doing nothing. You'll never get them back because you killed that stack, but it's just eating up space. So if you do a Docker compose down dash V as in Victor, it will actually kill those volumes. So if you go do your Docker commands to check the system space after that, it'll be empty. It's beautiful. Nice. So, so it, it eliminates a bunch of steps that I used to do. And then the other thing that you reminded me of is you said you did a Docker images, right? And you, and you saw your list. I had actually gone to a talk one time and I think it was the dude who did the, uh, the DevOps in Docker that blew my mind, like totally just completely blew my mind. Oh, I think I was in that talk at that talk with you. Do you remember him going, Oh man, I'm out of space. And he, <laughs> and he looked and he had a ton of Docker images. He's like, Oh man, I need to figure out which ones I, I can kill here so I can do this demo that I'm trying to show you guys, right? 
Okay, if you're running into that, then you need another drive. And <laughs> and I'm going to recommend. I was wondering where this was going. Yeah, I'm going to recommend one. I have a link in the show notes for this, but no lie. I bought this for my laptop, right? So I've got the gigabyte. I need to do a review on that thing. I, I, I need to get that out for you guys because I, I truly do love this laptop. But one of the primary reasons I picked this gigabyte arrow was because not only did it ship with its own NVMe PCIe drive in it, it had a slot for a second one. Intel makes an NVMe PCI express drive that is affordable. Like it's not the very fastest one on the market, but it gets close to two gigabit reads or two gigabyte per second reads and a little over a gigabyte writes in speed and a two terabyte Intel 660p usually hovers around about 185 bucks. So that's a whole lot of space and a whole lot of speed for not a ton of money when we're talking about SSD prices. So you could switch all your Docker images to go to that thing. And then you could, you don't even have to worry about it for a year or two. So the only place that I could find it for sale was on B and H and it's a hundred and eighty five dollars for a two terabyte. For the two terabyte, very important. Yes, yeah. thank you. So I I think I had looked on Amazon. Maybe they're all sold out. Now. Yeah, I don't know that it's there anymore. Uh, that kind of stinks. Let me see. Two terabyte Intel six sixty p. No, it I'm gone? sorry. It's there. Two the two terabyte is a hundred ninety three dollars on Amazon. Yep. So I mean, seriously fantastic little drive. Oh, actually, no, it would be the same 185 because they have a, an extra coupon. for. Oh, yeah, I see. Eight Save bucks. eight bucks. There you go. Yeah, so you can get it on Amazon for the same $185 price. So if you're looking for some NVMe storage for not break the bank kind of money, you can get the one terabyte uh, for, I think it's like 90-something bucks. Let's see. Uh, it's sold it out like, on Amazon. Yeah, on B and H, it was like a ninety five dollars. Yeah, so ninety five bucks, man. Like that—that's killer storage prices for that. So, at any rate, I have a link there. Uh, Joe, your turn. All right. Well, sorry, I was reading uh, this amazing book that I'm going to tell you about right now. <laughs> it uh, covers a lot of material, actually. The name of the book is Designing Data Intensive Applications, and uh, it's—I'm sure you've heard some of the buzzwords I've kind of been dropping, like write ahead logs and. Um, you know, different uh, encodings and, and just sort of stuff. But uh, I've been reading and loving this book. And uh, I don't know, it might be in the running for like my favorite tech book ever. It's definitely a back-end kind of focus, like how distributed systems work. But it's just so interesting to me that I can like go and read a chapter on how like different data storage systems work. There's always things I've kind of wondered about and kind of thought about a little bit myself. And it's kind of cool to hear how these big systems do it. And it's got really good uh, recommendations. Like one thing I was actually just kind of perusing through because I skipped around a bit. I wanted to see what they had to say about basically uh, streaming and log structured events and when you have deletes to do and they referred to inserting tombstones, which is something that I haven't had to do yet with Kafka, but I know that's kind of like standard practice for like inserting these tombstone records that refer to removing messages. So then those tombstone records are automatically ignored whenever you copy to uh, another uh, another topic. So I just thought it was kind of cool. It's like, oh, they do have a, a mechanism for that. And it is immutable, and that's how they kind of deal with it. And so it's nice to kind of see that and read it. So a couple of other things. Um, they've Wait. got sections on columnar databases. Oh, somebody have something? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, go on. 
uh, common R databases, uh, streaming architectures, um, particularly in the data storage section, that's been my favorite so far, where they talk about different uh, like database systems, like they talk about Elasticsearch, talk about like, SQL Server, Postgres, uh, Redis, and they talk about different uh, technologies underneath, which is basically the data structures and algorithms that govern those systems. So like things like whether it's a hash index versus SS table versus a, a log structure, a message tree, a merge tree, a B tree. So it's it just been really cool and I really like it. And I hope to talk about it quite a bit on the show because I, I think it's just chock full of info. And I feel like uh, I, I get a little bit more about kind of what makes these systems unique and different. That's awesome. And we will be covering this. Well, how, in fairness, you haven't said the title of the book yet. Yeah, I did. Oh, uh, yeah, I stuck it in there, but it sounded like everything else. It's designing data intensive applications. I got a, pi- a picture of like a flying pig on the front, like a hog that's jumping. And it looks like a generic O'Reilly book, uh, which is not a bad thing, but you know, it looks like kind of like every other O'Reilly book you've ever seen has got like an animal on the front and you know, kind of colors and the title even kind of sounds generic. But man, uh, I'm about a third through with it now. And every section has just been kind of amazing. So I've been really happy with it and definitely planning on uh, talking. I've actually been highlighting too. So I, I need to go back and kind of fill in some of the gaps like uh, about those tombstones because it's really interesting stuff that I apparently skipped over. I think so they, I'm really excited about the book. I think they call this flying pig a warthog. <laughs> yeah, it definitely looks more. It looks kind of like my dogs, actually. He is That's kind of what they look like. Warthog. And they need to go out. Yeah, I, I have a love-hate relationship with this book. Wait, so. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I, I love this book, but I hate it because I'll read something and then I'm like, oh, really? And I'll go like start Googling something else and be like, you know, so I can't ever get far into the book because like I'll read a page of it or a section of it. And I'm like, you know, get distracted because I want to go look for other things related to that topic. And this book is not short. You know, it, it no. is it is a very it's massive. Yeah, it's a big book. And I'm like, I will never in my lifetime get through this book at the rate that I'm going. You know what I love <laughs> about this, guys, is I feel like you've both now drunk my Kool-Aid, which is big data. Like, But billions, I, man, I'm on it. Dude, big data is just so fun, right? Like there's so many problems to solve in big data. It's just a fun topic. It's a frustrating topic, but it's fun. Well, well I, I mean, think I spent so, by so many years. The big data uh you know terminology in the beginning okay i haven't read yeah. it yet well it's been so many years like you know it's like all right here's my c sharp and here's my relational database like i can solve anything with enough if statements and for loops and then like kind of like getting more exposure out of the things using other tools it's like holy cow like some of these tools that are specialized for the things that you know they're they're special at make really tough problems really easy mm-hmm so I'll give you one little example where it, uh, the book kind of helped me out. I was reading a little bit about how Elastic stores their data underneath, and they use a, a log structure or LSM uh, merge tree. And one of their tricks is that they append all changes. So anytime you change a document, they write it to the end of their index, and they basically keep track of where the document was earlier in the index and ignore it in future searches. Hmm. So what nice. the book was saying is, like, if you make an update to any record – it's like doing a whole nother insert for every update. So earlier uh, this week, I had an opportunity where I needed to update every single record in the index. I was like, so let me see. So if I do an update on every single index, then I should see the size of my index double. Even though I'm only doing an update, I'm setting one field, one small zero to a one. I did it. And sure enough, I went from three gigs to six gigs. 
Interesting. I did it one more time. I'm like, let me try it again. <laughs> and then sure enough, after the update ran, it went from six to 12. Or, sorry, it went from six to nine because right. it only repeated yep. the same number of records. And then I ran a command to condense it and it went back down to three. Okay, so that's what I was going to say. So you can absolutely like tell it, hey, compress this back. So it basically kills off the old history. Yep. And all it does for that is basically goes back and kind of resources or its indexes and kind of trims that stuff out and re- opens it back up for reallocation. Man, that's super useful information. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, that that was like a little, you know, three-paragraph thing. It's like, oh, by the way, here's something cool that Elastic does. I'm like, holy cow. Okay. Yeah, I'm excited about this. We're going we're going to be doing uh, a series of podcasts on this here coming up soon. After I think it's after the three-factor app, right? Uh, I think we got a, a couple in the middle talking about uh, DevOps. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so we'll definitely be talking about NoSQL versus SQL, data storage mechanisms, uh, streaming architectures more, like all that sort of stuff. It's all it's all good stuff. Excellent, excellent. All right. All so right, so go ahead. that's about it for the episode. We talked about revi- reliable eventing as part of the three-factor app, which, as we mentioned before, is just a, a modern, high-velocity, scalable architectural pattern for building uh, certain kinds of applications that we think is really nifty. All right. And with that, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Be sure to leave us a review if you haven't already. We we really appreciate it. I know you hear us say it all the time, but we really do appreciate it. It puts a smile on our face. We love reading those things. So you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, go ahead and check out our amazing show notes, our examples, discussions, and so much more. And if you have feedback, questions, or rants, then the best place to go is the Slack group, which you can go to uh, codingbox.net slash Slack and hop on in there. And make sure to follow us at Twitter uh, at CodingBox or heading over to codingbox.net and finding links social at page top. <laughs> I think the uh, transaction queue got out of order there. <laughs> it did. It did. The ordering is <laughs> wrong. Like, hey, I guaranteed that you would get the message at least once. <laughs> I didn't say anything about order. <laughs> I didn't say anything about dupes. Uh.